the Digital Leaders Podcast, Episode 7, Kajal Odedra. Technology is changing the way we connect, learn, and do business. On this season of the Digital Leaders Podcast, we sit down with some of the UK's most influential thought leaders in government, enterprise, and entrepreneurship to learn more about what they are doing to digitally transform themselves and the organizations they lead, why it matters, and what we can do as listeners to build our own prosperous, digitally enabled, and connected communities. The time is now. The place is the Digital Leaders Podcast, and the future is digital. Hi, guys, and welcome to Episode 7 of the Digital Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Tara Ferguson, and today we are back with the Executive Director of Change.org in the UK, Kajal Odedra. Kadril spent most of her childhood and teen years growing up in the Midlands, where life was not always easy, and Kadril learned early on that being different came with its own unique set of challenges. She graduated from Loughborough University with a BA in English and spent many years working with NGOs advocating on behalf of those with no voice. Five years ago, Kajal joined Change.org, an online organization that seeks to empower individuals to start a campaign to petition change for a cause that they care about. To date, more than 200 million people in 196 countries have used Change.org to evoke change in their respective communities, countries, and globally, with big and small victories taking place every day. On today's show, Kajal shares how Change.org is helping minority groups and young people have a voice. She explains how government and politicians can leverage the Change.org platform to understand the issues that matter most to their constituents. And she shares some incredible success stories that remind us that it is true what they say, one person really can change the world. So with that, please welcome my guest today, Kajal Odedra. All right, so thank you for being on the show, Kajal. You're welcome. Before we start talking about change.org, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about your background. What impact did growing up in predominantly a Caucasian community have on your future as a writer and activist? Yeah, I think it really shaped me. We lived in a very Asian community. And then when I was around six or seven, my parents moved us to a very white working class village in the Midlands and the UK. And um, we owned a shop and we were the only people of color in the community. And it didn't go down very well, you know, experienced a lot of racism. And that became quite a normal thing. Every day, mum and dad were coming back home after closing the shop and we'd be all in the living room in the evenings and hear the stories of what had happened that day. Or, you know, they would have just been racially attacked just as they were coming home. Mm-hmm. And so that was, it was very heightened often. I remember my memories of the evenings were very heightened. Sometimes police were being called around to our house. But then also going to school, you know, I realized very quickly from going to a very Asian community and a school there to then this school in this new village and realizing I was the only person who looked like me and had my own, you know, the experiences that I had and not quite fitting in. And I think that really impacted me because seeing the world as an outsider, it kind of taught me that 
you know, you're not necessarily going to be heard and that not everybody comes to the table who is equal. And so feeling like I was different and that that wasn't an acceptable thing. I think I realized as I grew older that my differences weren't a bad thing Mm -hmm. because wanting to be white, um, which is really sad. And, you know, just wishing that I was the same as everyone else, as probably most you know kids do. And then growing older and actually moving to London and realizing that it was the differences that I had that made me who I am. And actually really leaning into those differences and realizing that's the strength of who you are, the things that make you up. And I think our current power structures in the country and you know, what, what I saw on TV as I was growing up and the people who supposed heroes were all a certain type of person. There was a message that you, know, you have to be a certain type of person to flourish in society. And if you're not in that category, you, know, you have to accept that you're at a disadvantage. And I think I really wanted to fight that as I you know, grew older and realized that it's okay to be different. And so that really shaped my you know, desire to being an activist and wanting to help those people in society who, ne- who don't necessarily realize that they are powerful. Now, I want to ask you, why did you decide to get involved with change.org? So I, was, I've, I spent the first 10 or 11 years of my career working as an activist for NGOs. So essentially working for organizations, you know, maybe homeless charity or um, fighting for the rights of people who have cancer. And I enjoyed it and I, you know, felt very passionate about the cause. But I realized quickly that I wasn't really helping people as directly as I wanted to. And I wasn't really seeing the um, direct impact of the work that we were doing. Change.org started in the UK around six years ago. And so it was just starting. And I saw this thing that had popped up and you know, this platform that was basically giving a voice to ordinary people. And it was so disruptive. And it was really exciting being an activist at that time and seeing this platform um, emerge in the UK. And I wanted to be a part of that. So I joined shortly after. So I joined about five and a half years ago. So I basically then realized that, you know, this platform could actually empower those affected by the issue. So rather than the organizations that were working to influence in a very in successful ways as well, but they didn't always have the people affected by the issues at the heart of what they were doing. Whereas I could work at Change.org with a single mum who no one was listening to and then help her use the platform, get heard, and then create real change and then able to turn around to her and say, you know, you've done this, you're more powerful than you think. And that's really exciting. Right. Um, and actually showing her as well, look at how many other people feel the same way and want to support you. Whereas before you were feeling like you were the only one, look at, you know, how many people this is impacting as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's what's exciting about when change.org emerged, it was social media was really taking off and this platform and sites like Twitter and Facebook, they're able to connect people from different parts of the country who are potentially feeling alone in their, you know, their homes and their bedrooms. And and, and I know what that feels like growing up in this very, you know, it was like, you know, it's quite a hostile environment that I grew up in and desperately wanting to find people who had the same experience as me. And Change.org is able to do that because you can start this petition and have people joining your campaign. And there's nothing more empowering than feeling like you're not the only one and that you've got solidarity from people who you haven't even met. That's just, you know, I think that really makes people feel special. 
Agreed. Now, what's interesting is that your organization is currently in 19 countries, and you, yeah. you guys have grown from 3 million to 17 million in yeah. the last five since you joined. In the UK. <laughs> so, in the UK, yeah. Right, in the UK, right, right. So it's all since you joined. No, I'm kidding. But, <laughs> um, what do you attribute the massive amount of growth that you guys have received in the last five years? I've got a pretty strong feeling about this. So when I started in the campaigning world, it was just before Change.org emerged. You know, I think campaigning was starting to feel very faceless. So you had these like NGOs who were campaigning about things and everything felt quite corporate and faceless. And it didn't really feel like you as an ordinary person could get behind a cause and you would know that you could make a difference so that your voice personally, me, you know, this individual in, you know, Liverpool could actually make a difference. It kind of felt impenetrable. And then this platform came along and ordinary people's voices became heard and elevated and you could get behind this individual. So, you know, maybe a teenager or a single mum, and you could make their voice louder. And I think it's quite addictive because it's really disruptive. So I think, you know, as a society, we're taught that certain people have power and if that's not you, you don't have any agency. But then people were able to join these kind of armies of people power, see that change was being created. And it turned that notion on its head that, you know, only certain people in society have power. So I think that the disruptive element of it and the fact that it was, um, it really... uh, touches on the idea of David versus Goliath and, you know, the uh, power of the underdog. And I think that is exciting and everybody wants to be a part of that. You know, everyone wants to support the person who no one thinks is going to win. And when it's set up against these big, powerful structures, like, you know, multinational companies and governments, yeah, that's exciting to get behind that. And also, I think, so that coupled with the fact that we're an open platform, so regardless of your political beliefs, you can use the platform. And there was nothing like that. And there is nothing really comparable like that now, where, you know, regardless of what I, whether I voted to leave or remain the EU as a UK citizen, I can campaign to have my voice heard about Brexit. And because of that, that's actually engaged you know, huge portions of people who weren't necessarily able to get heard. You know, what's really important to me is to really normalize the act of having your voice heard. And I think that that's what we've managed to do. So we've got, we're 17 million users in the UK now, and that's one in four of the UK population. And one in four of the UK population definitely won't be associating themselves with the word activist, but they're able to have their voice heard on this platform. And they, step by step, able to see that by putting their name to a cause, you've got the chance to get heard and that you've got a right to have, have a say about issues that affect you. Okay, so just for listeners so that they are clear on how it works, like you said, it is free for you to participate. Yeah. Basically, you go to the website and you can create a campaign on any issue that you feel that you want to express. Is that correct? Yeah. And, okay, right. I just wanted to be clear so that people understand that there's no specific issues or group of issues that are discussed. People can share their opinions or beliefs on any topic. And yeah. what, they can do, what they do is they distribute it via their networks to get people to support them. And we're going to talk a little bit in a bit about some of the campaigns that have actually been successful and what that looks like. Yeah. But I just wanted to be clear on sort of how that works for listeners. If they yeah. haven't, participated in, in, uh, in a campaign on change.org. 
Yeah, the idea is that, you know, if you see something that you think is not right, you can get your phone out and you, can, you should be able to start a petition about that issue. So it might be someone being mistreated on an airplane, uh, which has recently happened in the UK, um, or in, in Spain, actually, a flight coming back to the UK, a woman was racially abused. The airline didn't take action and somebody started a petition straight away calling for the airline to compensate the woman um, affected. And so, you know, you should be able to see these injustices around you and be able to start a petition straight away and then be able to connect with people who agree with you. Just out of curiosity, now, do you have to identify yourself when you're starting this petition? Uh, So you create a profile, so you... um, it asks you for your name, but we do have people who use pseudonyms because we've had people who are whistleblowers use the site. So they might be, they might see practices going on in their workplace that they don't agree with and they don't want to risk their job, but they want to speak out about it. And so we've worked with an employee of um, Sainsbury's, which is a big supermarket in the UK, one of the, one of the big five. She used a pseudonym to call for better workers' rights in Sainsbury's. And so, and also, you know, in, in, other countries it's really important certain countries where you know your engagement in in speaking out you know could put you your life at risk yeah so it's really important that people are able to but your email address has to be valid and you know we've got systems to check that email addresses are valid got it one of the things that's fantastic about the platform is that it gives anybody the voice to be able to share an injustice at the same time we want to make sure that everyone feels safe. And I know that change.org does that. And so you mentioned Brexit. <laughs> and so I kind of wanted to chat a little bit about that because that was sort of one of your bigger campaigns, correct? Yeah, so we, we, there's a petition um, started by the editor of the Independent Newspaper, which is an impartial newspaper in the UK. And they started a petition calling for um, the uh, UK government to allow the public a final say. So regardless of whether you voted for leave or remain, the UK public should be allowed to have a vote on what the final Brexit deal looks like, because that's what the government is at the moment developing with the EU. And that will go through Parliament. And what Christian from The Independent says is that the UK public should also get a final vote on that. And um, it's been huge. It's the, it got to a million signatures on um, Saturday that's just passed right. and um so that's been the biggest petition we've had on the site this year in the uk wow um, it's just it's got a million signatures in just a few months two three months and yeah that's huge because we've got so many users we've got one in four of the population we get a really good temperature check of what people are thinking and feeling about certain issues so for example when the prime minister does a big speech or there's a big event that happens in the country or in the world we'll see the impact of that by seeing the kind of petitions that are started on the back of that, that event. If a petition goes viral, and you know, we see it signed across the board by such a huge amount of users, then you really get a sense of what the public are feeling about an issue. And I think one thing that people really feel about Brexit is that so much is being discussed every day. We're hearing in, the new, in every single newspaper and you can't, you can't go, you know, move without somebody talking about Brexit. But nobody's canvassing the public's vote feelings about this issue. So you're hearing about it every single day, but you're not actually able to have a say. And I think that's a really frustrating position to be in. You want to know what's interesting is our last guest on the show, 
I asked him one person he would like to sit down with and chat with, and he said Theresa May. And I'm sure it's just because he like he him like many yeah. other people just want to have an idea of what's going on in the next yeah. couple months, right? Because yeah. I think everyone feels in the dark. In the dark, and I think you know, I think to a certain extent. There is a lot of more information now about what the government's doing in regards to the deal. There was maybe, you know, half a year ago. But I still think from a, the public's point of view, they haven't had any say. You know, they, they got to vote whether we leave or remain. But that doesn't really mean anything. You know, the, actually the details of what Brexit looks like, that's really what, that's going to shape our country for the next few decades. And the fact that nobody voted for these specific issues and weren't able to, um, I think isn't, is, is quite frustrating for the public. So I'm not surprised that we've seen, you know, this petition take off so dramatically. And we're going to be doing a lot more work. So in the next, next few weeks, we're going to be talking to our users, you know, how do you want your local representative to be canvassing your views about Brexit? Are they canvassing your views and, you know, feeding them back to the government? Because essentially what we care the most about at change is that is people power and I feel like that is actually something that is missing right now in the Brexit debate. So we're going to switch from Brexit a bit because I know (laughs) I'm sure everyone could talk talk about it for hours. (laughs) (laughs) But I wanted to know, can you share a couple of examples of some campaigns that have not only been won on change.org, but have also gone to change the way that processes and legislation have been determined in the past? Yes. I mean, there's so many examples. I know. I know. Well, and that's actually really a really good thing. But if, are there any that sort of yes, come yeah. to mind? Yeah. I mean, I think one that's actually really interesting because we've seen the recently there's like a we've seen the impact of it. So um, it was actually one of the first big campaigns that we had in the UK that really became one of our flagship campaigns. So the Bank of England were changing the five pound note and they were putting Winston Churchill on the five pound note. And doing that, it would have meant that there would be no women on banknotes, apart from the Queen on the other side of the note, which doesn't count. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you, you know, you just had all men on every single banknote being remembered. So Caroline... And I'm sure it's all men, one race. Yeah, it, oh, 100%. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, one type of person, basically very homogenous. Caroline Criado Perez, a feminist and writer, saw this and um, she was tweeting about uh, the fact that this was ridiculous, that there would be no women on banknotes. So then she ended up starting a petition on change.org, calling on the Bank of England to put women on banknotes. It grew and grew and grew, but it wasn't, you know, it's really interesting now um, in terms of the numbers that it gained, because it got around 30,000 signatures, which even then wasn't the, you know, the biggest petition that we had, but it really sparked the interest of um, lots of activists and journalists. And it, you know, it became a real talking point. The Bank of England got asked about it. And Mark Carney, who was um, just, had just been appointed as the governor of Bank of England, got quizzed about it and asked if he was going to do anything about this issue. Caroline then started um, crowdfunding to make a legal case Mm. because she had spoken to one of her signers had contacted her, who was a lawyer and had said, you know, I think you might have a legal case here about uh, the representation of women. So Caroline started crowdfunding and she raised um, over 20,000 pounds. And then finally the bank of England asked Caroline in for a meeting. 
they agreed to put a woman on the next note, which was the £10 note. Um, but not only that, they also changed from that moment, they changed their processes. So um, what had happened was um, those decisions were made behind closed doors. So, you know, who would they, they would put on the banknote was made by a small group of people with no consultation. And after that campaign, they then decided to open it up to the public and that they agreed to consult and have a consulting process every time they were making a decision about who would be on the banknote. So what that's so cool. amazing and so right now the bank of england is reissuing they, they're going to be reissuing the 50 pound note and they've got a big consultation about who should be on that 50 pound note and we've got a big campaign again on change.org for mary seacole who is a british woman of color um to be on the um, 50 pound note and we've had so many other campaigns but that's been one that's really taken off and that's um exciting. it's incredible it's incredible because it's actually you know Caroline didn't start this petition. You know, she's a you know, staunch feminist and she believes in equality. And she wasn't naive enough to think that this campaign would create equality in society. But by running that campaign, she knew that it would spark a debate about actually how we were remembering women in our institutions. And it did. And it basically became the beginning of a domino effect of so many other campaigns about how women were being treated in the media and in institutions. I'm so proud it was on our site and that, you know, some of the most iconic women's rights campaigns have been on the platform, which is interesting in, in itself, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you know what, it's one of those things that sometimes you don't spend too much time thinking about who's yeah. on the banknote, but when you actually sit down and think about it and, and look at what we are telling people through our currency exactly. and who's on it. We yeah. see that things need to be changed. And actually in Canada, we've done the same thing. And we recently have a woman of color on one of our notes as well. Well, you call them. That's bank. amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So and it is, it's a huge step forward for government. But, you know, these are things that make a huge difference. And it's fantastic that your platform in this campaign was able to not only make a difference for the 10 pound note, but also change the way that the processes have been done for God knows how long. Centuries, I'm sure. Totally. And, and, you know, having that debate and conversation so loudly in the media means that people, you know, young women and, and young men are questioning the world around them. And it's so important that we do that. So, it's, you, know, you know, that one act isn't going to change everything, but it actually changes the way that we are engaging in the world around us. Yes, exactly. Okay, so I wanted to ask you, what can organizations like digital leaders do to help raise the awareness and accessibility of the change.org platform? So I, th I think these campaigners and these petition starters would be so much more effective if their local MPs and the people in positions of power were more digitally literate. And I think at the moment what we see, especially from the point of view that we're sitting at change.org, so we see all these people and, you know, the society using tech and social media to have their voices heard. And yet I turn to Parliament and Westminster and I see government just completely in the Stone Ages still. <laughs> you know, the ability to connect to people online and be able to help have these people's voices heard there's there's still like this massive divide a digital divide and so one thing that we are we do a lot and talk about a lot is digital democracy and i think you know that's what organizations like digital leaders in these spaces where they're connected to 
influences and you know the more politically savvy politicians i really think right now is more important than ever to be pushing for parliament and our mp's to be more digitally savvy especially in a world where you know we have seen brexit and trump get elected and a, a lot of that has played out online but our politicians aren't necessarily that engaged with what's going on online so i think that's you know that i think bridging the digital divide between citizens and the powerful institutions is is something that we really advocate mhm mhm i agree it's true because one of the great things is that i mean i'm sure you've seen with change.org it's giving people all around the world who have access to digital the opportunity to speak up so it's really important that the people that are able to actually make those changes are online as well and listen exactly. and yes. and there right because if you're all yeah. showing up to the party one place but no one's there to actually make the change and totally. it, it just yeah it takes a little bit longer for things to actually happen so yeah yeah exactly we we've got this tool called um, the decision makers tool that we um, developed because we realized that whilst petitions had given the public like a microphone to shout into decision makers didn't necessarily have the headphones to listen right and so we created this tool where anyone being targeted on a petition they can see they can have their own profile they can see all the petitions that are targeting them they can also respond to those petitions and once you respond to a petition your response goes into the inbox of everyone who signed so whilst traditionally you know you might be campaigned at to create a policy change and you might respond by maybe saying responding to a journalist who gets who asks you you know whether you you're going to make this change or not those people who signed that campaign aren't necessarily going to hear that and they're the ones who care the most about this issue and so now you can respond to the, to a petition the response goes to the inbox of the signers signers can then respond to what you've said to the petition and um it's all in an attempt to create a digital dialogue between the two parties And so now what we you know we've had some incredible people we we had Nick Clegg the former deputy prime minister use the platform we've had the BBC Facebook Uber um the mayor of London uses it more than any other decision maker in the world which is really? incredible yeah he's that's, incredible that's awesome it is but we really need to see more of that and more of these kind of politicians who are open to not just you know burying their head in the sand um, but actually open to hearing what people have got to say How do you think your platform has helped minority groups and young people have a voice? It's it's interesting when when I was talking about the banknotes campaign and how that was the that was really the start of seeing a, um so many women's rights campaigns uh, win on our platform and really become part of this fourth wave of feminism that was happening in the UK. Um and I think it's no coincidence because if you think about it traditionally where you could have your voice heard so you know you could be an mp or you could be um elected as a leader in an organization um and those spaces aren't really accessible to people who are underrepresented in society so they naturally are you know if you're a, a privileged white man you can get into those spaces but really if you're not then it's not it's harder for you to have your voice heard then changed org and you know social media platforms came along and we've actually seen young people uh, people of color women people with disabilities be the most effective at winning campaigns and i think it's because all of a sudden 
the tables have turned and they've got powerful tools behind mm-hmm. them and they're actually able to um, garner that power and, and mobilize. So one of the best campaign victories um, stories that um, I um, have worked on in the last year was this girl called Belinda, who was a student and her mum was um, is in a wheelchair. Um, she, Belinda's a student in London and her mum was coming to visit her for the weekend as Belinda was finishing her first year of uni. And um, what was supposed to be a really lovely weekend for the both of them ended up being an absolute nightmare because they were using apps to get around the city. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where the app said, you know, you can go from A to B in 30 minutes, they'd get to B only to be faced with a footbridge or um, another un- unaccessible way of actually getting out of the station or getting to their location. And they had to go back and forth and just waste hours in the city, not being able to get to their destination because Google Maps wasn't giving them accessible routes because it just didn't have that facility. So Belinda went home and feeling completely humiliated and frustrated and angry you know I know how that feels to feel like you know to feel humiliated because your parents are being humiliated Um, she so she went home and she started a petition um, calling on Google Maps to be uh, wheelchair accessible and you know at first Google Maps ignored it and uh, she got uh, now you're really gonna make me cry you know <laughs> I'm sorry for upsetting okay. you. Um, the petition was growing and growing, and it got to maybe uh, 50,000, 60,000, 70,000. One journalist in particular called up Google for a response. They did respond. And um, then it got to over 100,000. And can you imagine for someone like Belinda, who maybe feels like uh, the issue of disabilities is ignored in society and nobody cares? And then she's seeing hundreds of thousands of people signing the campaign saying, No, we're standing with you. And um, then people started um, taking action. So she got people to, you know, leave um, messages for Google on their Google Maps, on the reviews. And um, it, the campaign grew and grew and grew. Belinda wrote an op-ed talking about her experience. And then finally, Google invited her in for a meeting. And now they're rolling out accessible Google Maps in major cities, including London, Paris, New York, on desktop. And that's incredible. Oh that's my God, incredible. that's amazing. I literally am. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing because, you know, someone like Belinda, this young person, and someone like her mother, they just, you know, our society isn't set up for them to have their voice heard. Yeah. And they're able to use tools now to change that. And they're making change. And, and, and you know, then people who've signed her campaign are able to see, oh, I can do that too. Yeah. And so I feel like, you know, not only is it empowering those people and it's it's actually also making our society more democratic because you know we'll end up with better policies and better laws if we have more diverse people making them and that's kind of change that always almost hacking the uh you know the way of policy making by forcing these people into the debate I love it. I love it. That's amazing. Well, okay. I'm super excited for you guys to continue all the good work that you're doing. We're going to wrap up this interview now, but before we do, I just have four very quick questions for you. So oh, God. I'm going to ask you the question and you're going to say the first thing that comes to mind. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> all right. So here we go. Um, the one book I would recommend to all listeners is? It's probably my favorite book. It's called The God of Small Things. By Aaron Dutty Roy. The one person I would like to have lunch with is? 
maybe I think this is really difficult. I'm going to say Beyonce <laughs> because I think she is just in, I think she's just been doing amazing, amazing things um, with um, her brand and her power and her voice in mobilizing uh, not just the black community, but women and other people of color. I, you know, yeah, I found her so empowering. The one thing people would be surprised to learn about me is English isn't my first language. So I grew up not understanding English. Um, I spoke uh, Gujarati and I used to get really upset when my um, older cousins would speak English and uh, when we would play board games and I didn't understand. So when did you finally learn English? Yeah, I, I think when I was around um, five or six. Very interesting. And the advice I would give my 15 year old self would be? Okay, I don't want to get all emo, <laughs> but it, it's that your, your differences are going to be the things that make you who you are. All right, and that is it for this week's episode. Now, if you want to find out more about Cadrill and change.org, head on over to our website, digileaders.com forward slash digital leaders podcast, and we have more information there. If you like what you heard and think someone else you know would enjoy it as well, then obviously we would love it if you share this podcast. And if you want, you can tag us. You can find us at DigiLeaders on social. Next week, we are back with Lenny Zneimer. She's the GM of the UK and Northern Ireland on this small co-working space you may have heard of. It's called WeWork. And we chat about this massive tenant in London and what's on the horizon. So make sure you are subscribed via iTunes so you do not miss it. That is it for this week's episode. I'm your host, Tara Ferguson. Thank you so much for listening. And we will be back next week with another episode of the Digital Leaders Podcast.